How are you out there tonight? Good. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 tonight. Put a couple quarters in those video screens so they light up. There we go. Father, we just thank you tonight for being able to come here and worship. We thank you for the worship team that spends their time and their energy just because they love you and want to usher us into the presence of God, Lord. I pray you bless them, Lord. And Father, bless the word tonight. Give us ears to hear and hearts ready to receive. Holy Spirit, open up our hearts tonight. Let there be good ground there. Plow up the fallow ground. And Father, I pray that none of us would leave here the way we came, but we leave changed by your word tonight. And I know you have a lot of blessings for us in Acts chapter 8. And I pray that we wouldn't miss a single one, but that, Holy Spirit, you would drive them deep into our hearts. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to watch it. Then we're going to read it. Then we're going to live it. Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, worn deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. boasted that he was someone great and all the people both high and low gave him their attention and exclaimed this man is the divine power known as the great power they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Mm. 
When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said. Unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip. Tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Oh! The eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. <laughs> Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea.
Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. <sighs> I know, we wanted to watch more, right? A lot happened in Acts chapter 8, though. Uh, verse 1, again, we're made aware of Saul of Tarsus. Now, we know him as the Apostle Paul, but in the beginning here, he, he wasn't Paul. He was Saul, and a, a much different character and a much different uh, meaning to the early church. He was a Pharisee, and he presided over the murder of Stephen. So as Stephen was stoned, remember, he's there and he's holding the coast. He's giving approval. He's like the overseeing religious representative there, that this is exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to snuff out these Christians, these believers who follow the way. They didn't want to hear about Jesus anymore. They just wanted it all to go away. And Saul of Tarsus was the man to get that job done. Now, he's in full agreement with the stoning of Stephen. And you, and you might think, okay, wh why is he why is he so excited about this? Because Saul was really anxious to persecute the church. Now, he saw them as heretics, as infidels, as, as a cancer. And he wanted them gone because he wanted to preserve the brand of Judaism and the legalism that you know he had really dedicated his whole life to. So you see that he's anxious to persecute the church. And this was kind of a springboard for him to be the chief persecutor, uh, Stephen's murder gets the ball rolling. So now it's as if the gloves are off, okay? This is kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that gets the ball rolling here. So him presiding over this is something that, you know, he's really excited about this. Now, think about that for just a second. Everything we read about Saul before God turns him into Paul should be a powerful reminder to us that God is able to turn even the worst people around. Amen. Amen. Gary, could you turn this down just a little bit? It's a little echoey up here. I'm starting to freak myself out. So you, you look at people and you know you think this person's so bad, I mean, there's just no hope. Have you ever, I mean, have you ever looked at people and go, there's no way that person will get saved? Come on. And then God says, watch this. And he saves that person. I remember when I was a young person, there was a, there was a kid in the youth group that was here with me. I, I was, you know, I got saved in this church. I was part of the youth ministry here. There was a kid in the youth group and one of the people on staff said, you know, I never, I, when I saw that kid get saved because the two of us went to Bible school together and, and the guy on staff said, when I saw that guy got saved, I knew that God could save anybody. Because, I mean, he just thought, I, there's no way. I mean, so out of control, so bad, so irresponsible, so disrespectful. And God says, watch this. Come on. You know, when people say no way, God says, I, there is a way. I'm the way. God likes to take people who are, you know, way out there on the fringes and say, look what I can do with this. I can snatch them out of the muck and the mire and the dirt and the filth, and I can make them trophies of my grace, and I can fill them with my power and use them for my glory. Come on, that's what God does. And we can't forget that. We look and we judge with our eyes, but we don't know. God had a destiny for Saul here. And, you know, as, as I, you know, I've, I've been studying, continuing to outline chapter 9, it's just amazing. When God grabs a hold of him, there's no turning back for Saul as he turns into Paul. And truly, he has little to say about it. Huh. When God marks you, 
he's got a way of just, you know, getting you to agree with the call of God on your life. So Saul is anxious to persecute the church, just gets the ball rolling. He sees, you know, he wants to stamp it out. Uh, you know, the apostles, everybody's running, everybody's scattered, they're being persecuted here. The apostles themselves don't run. Uh, many of the Christians are scattered into different places, we're gonna talk about that. But notice the leadership doesn't scatter, they stay in Jerusalem. And you know, sometimes God asked leadership to do different things, and these guys stood their ground. Was it dangerous? You betcha. Was it a risk? Absolutely. But sometimes God asks us to stand. You know, it's okay sometimes to withdraw. It's okay sometimes to retreat. It's okay sometimes just to be silent, but then when God says speak, we better speak. When God says go, we better go. When God says stand, we better stand. Sometimes I think for Christians forget that, that sometimes we're supposed to take a stand. Hang in there Wednesday night. We're just getting started. That was verse one. Verse two and three, Stephen is buried. He's, he's murdered. He's martyred. Uh, he's buried. And they make so, somewhat of a public presentation of it. It says, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women and committing them to prison. So Stephen's buried, uh, Saul's doing his thing, but these devout men, they make a to-do about Stephen's death. They make a public spectacle of, of sorts. And you know, so, there again, this is leadership being bold. And they're they're basically saying, you know, this guy was a devout man and he was murdered. And what does it do? It inflames Saul even more. It just makes the persecution ramp up. But understand, as the devil flexes and pushes, the leadership of the church doesn't shrink back. It's important to note. There's a time to take a stand. Uh, do they stand up? Do they, you know, secretly bury him or they don't make a big... No, they make a spectacle of it. They want the world to know that the religious power structure here, these religious power brokers, their wicked intentions were carried out and Stephen was murdered. Yes, he's a martyr, but they unjustly took his life from him. Now, we talked about martyrs and where their destiny is under the altar in heaven in the book of Revelation. Uh, if you weren't here on Sunday, listen to that and get some understanding. It, it is a great privilege to be a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If any of us were called to lay our lives down for Christ, I mean, what an incredible honor that would be. Wow. Just me? I'm ready to go. Come on, I wanna go out in a pile of hot brass. Let's go. So Stephen is carried off. It's a public spectacle. There, Saul is persecuting. He's dragging men and women into prison. I, I like the video there. They show him the, the temple guard chasing people down and snagging them. I mean, think about this for the early church. You know, we kind of watch it and it's comical, you know, watching these guys do that. But this must have been terrifying. You know, could you imagine if people were knock, if they're sending SWAT teams to your house, knocking on the door, kicking it in, no knock raid. Here they come pulling you out of bed traumatizing, terrifying. This is what's happening to the early church. It's persecution. The gloves are off. Now, uh, verse four, to some degree, we see the bubble of protection lifted off the church. It's lifted for even just a moment. And, you know, you, you, we have to look at that. And it says, therefore, they were scattered abroad and went everywhere and preached the word. Let's just take a look at that. God lifts the hedge of protection. Uh, they are persecuted. And while it seems unjust, and, you know, you might look at 
some of the things that God does and you think, God, was that really necessary? Did you ever go through some stuff in life? Come on, it is quiet tonight. Holy cow. Must have, must have been a hard day today. Here, let me just sit with you for a second here. <laughs> you know, you ever go through some stuff in life and you're like, God, was that really necessary? Did I have to, I mean, did I really, and, and you know, heaven is silent, which means yes. And it's just that we don't get it. Now you think, why would God lift the protection off? And here comes these guys and they're arresting them. They're, they're murdering them. They're jailing them. God, is this really necessary? And you know what? It, it seems unnecessary to us. It seems even unjust. It seems like, God, you know, you're being unfaithful. Why don't you protect your children? But understand something. It's serving a purpose that's greater than human understanding. Now, in hindsight, we can, you know, we can extract what the purpose was. There's a couple purposes here. Number one, this persecution is sorting out the casual believer from the true believer. Come on, you don't go to jail unless you truly believe. Casual believers would be like, oh, no, no, we're not with them, you know. But a true believer in Christ is going to stand up and take a stand, and they're going to be persecuted. So when the casual believer is separated from the true believer, the church is strengthened. So lifting the hedge strengthens the church. Number two, it makes a bold testimony to those outside the faith that these Christians are very serious about their allegiance to Jesus, that they're willing to be jailed and murdered and executed rather than recant their faith in him. That strengthens the church, amen? Understand, when the world looks and goes, my goodness, they won't, I mean, why don't they just fall in line? Why don't they just go with the flow? What, what's the big deal? When the world looks at that, they realize these people really believe. They really believe. And that strengthens the church. Number three, the persecution of the church, while we say, God, why did you lift the heads? Well, this is the third reason. The church is scattered, and everywhere the church was scattered, the gospel was preached. Do you know, sometimes we don't move when we should move. Sometimes we don't go when we should go. So God turns up the heat. You know, maybe some of these people were comfortable. They were knit into the community. They had family there. They had good businesses there. Maybe there was no way this early church, this fledgling congregation that had, you know, reached some level of maturity was going to leave. So God pulls the lid off and they get persecuted and they're scattered. And like handfuls of seed, everywhere they're thrown, they begin to sprout up. Why? Because the gospel is preached and the gospel is powerful. And you might say, God, why did you allow some of this stuff to happen to your children? Well, there's three reasons why. And all of them strengthen the church. And God's ways are not man's ways. But I guarantee you this, even when it doesn't make sense to us, God knows exactly what he's doing. We've just got to trust him. So verses five through seven, Philip having moved to Samaria, begins to do what disciples do. He proclaims the gospel with passion. He's got, you know, giftings and uh, apostolic giftings, and he has the anointing on him. So realize Peter is part of the movement. I mean, uh, he, uh, Philip is part of the movement here. He's, he's pushed out of that area. He goes to a different area. He begins to preach the gospel. What happens when the gospel's preached? People get saved. What happens when a bunch of people get saved? A church gets planted. And this is what the pattern we're going to see in the early church, everywhere they go. Now, I mean, do, do we do this? Do we preach the gospel wherever we go? We change jobs. We change neighborhoods. We change geographic locations. We're, you know, we're on the ball field. We're, we're, do we preach the gospel everywhere we go? 
We should. You know, this is, this is why we study the book of Acts, not so we could see people in costumes, you know, on a video. We study it because these principles are to provoke us to do what the early church did with passion and with fervor and, and with anointing to preach the gospel wherever we go, like handfuls of seed. You can harvest souls into the kingdom. He who wins souls is wise. Oh, no, pastor, that's why we hire you. We'll bring them here. You win them. No, I'm one person. I can only do so much, and I'm getting older. I can do less. You ever notice that? Yeah, when you have to start working smart instead of hard, then there's a point of diminishing returns on that. That's a whole nother sermon, but let's just keep moving here. So everybody's got to do their part. Philip gets pushed out. He, he begins to preach. Verse six, crowds of people gather to hear him share the gospel message. Uh, and, 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 and check out verse six here. You know, why are they gathering? Why are crowds gathering to him? And the people with one accord gave heed unto the things which Philip spake and hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So look at verse seven. For unclean spirits crying out with loud voices came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies that were lame were healed. So they're coming to listen to him preach the gospel, but realize there's a component here of the miraculous is following him, and that's what's attracting the crowds. Understand that. This is important here for us to, to gather some of this. People are coming to hear the message. Why? Because they liked his oratory skills, because he was a great, you know, skilled preacher, because he, he had lofty theological ideas and he had nice monologues. No, they were coming for the signs and wonders. Signs and wonders, are, are the, the, the miraculous is what is supposed to attract the unbeliever. Churches that say, oh, well, God doesn't, you know, God doesn't do any signs and wonders. God doesn't heal anybody. And, then, and the gifts of the Spirit and all this. You wonder why those churches are shrinking and they're dead and there's no youth in them. And all you have is a bunch of blue hairs until it dies. I've seen it over and over. Blue hairs are old people. Okay? I got some pastor friends that preside over these churches where there's no move of God because theologically they don't believe in it. So the Holy Spirit's not a bully. He doesn't show up and overwhelm people. And you wonder why these churches are dying. Hmm, sad. The signs and wonders attracted the crowds. The gospel message was powerful, and that's what changed hearts. But we need both in the church. Amen. So they came. They saw the signs. They were attracted by that. They heard the gospel message and uh, the crowds were following. People were being changed. Verse seven and eight tell us that demons were being cast out and people who were paralyzed were being healed. So realize, you know, for, for so long, the enemy just had dominion over these people. There was no outlet for them. If they had demonic issues, if they had children that were demon possessed, if they, whatever uh, demonic oppression they had, there was no place for them to go. Now the kingdom of God has touched earth and you got men walking around full of the Holy Spirit who have the power over the kingdom of darkness. Come on. And the Bible says, greater things than this shall we do. These signs shall follow them that believe. Come on. So he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. This is what the church is supposed to be doing. It tells us the city's response to this. And there was great joy in the city. So the city's rejoicing. What? That this guy came? No, that the kingdom of heaven has touched the kingdom of earth. 
that the power of God is finally manifest in a tangible way, not just words, not just theology, not just head knowledge, but real power. Wow, so awesome. This is what the church is supposed to be in the earth today. The city rejoices, uh, God is moving, the kingdom is being enlarged. Verse nine and 10 tell us now that Philip encounters Simon the sorcerer. And if you saw Simon there, what, that guy who played that part, give him an Academy Award, I'm telling you. We look like, I didn't know whether to, I don't know what to do for him, but he just, you know. He, <laughs> did they get a real demon-possessed guy? I don't know. But uh, I like this eyeliner, that was a nice touch. So Simon the sorcerer, he's, he's this guy who's involved in the occult. He's doing magic tricks. <laughs> he's doing magic, and probably there's demonic things too. You don't know if it was just, you know, sleight of hand magic or, you know, demon-inspired uh, occultic things, and probably a little bit of both. And, you know, uh, the people had great regard for him. Now, notice that. When the people have no true spirituality or true move of God, they settle for counterfeits. And people do it all the time in the world. Oh, I'm spiritual. I'm into this. I got crystals and I go to psychics and I get readings and tarot cards and all, all that. And, and is there power connected to that? Absolutely. Is it real sometimes? Absolutely. It's demonic. It's a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. It's a counterfeit of the, the spiritual gifts that the church is supposed to have. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, word of understanding, speaking in tongues. All of those things that the church is supposed to exercise, the enemy has a counterfeit of. And so here we go. This guy is the straight up counterfeit. He's involved in the occult. And the people have great regard for his spirituality. Notice what it says. It says he, he claimed to be someone great. Did you hear that, what the word says? When somebody has to tell you they're great, they ain't great. You know, if he's going around, I'm, I'm important. I'm a pretty big deal around here. I'm pretty special. You know, I'm the wizard, I'm the warlock, I'm the voodoo priest, I'm the medicine man, whatever. And that's those expressions that we see in all different cultures. But this guy had influence over the people and it was a demonic influence and it was a stronghold. So it needed to be broken there. Uh, he captivated people for a long time, verse 11 says. Verse 12 and 13 is, is so interesting to me. It's the outcome that we really want. But when they believed, Philip preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ and they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself, believed also and when he was baptized he continued to follow philip and wondering and beholding the miracles and the signs that were done so great outcome here this guy doesn't necessarily oppose although he tries to square off with him and realizes that he's outclassed because what he has is counterfeit and what you know philip has is real so what does he do if you can't beat him join him amen you know, the church needs to have enough power that the counterfeits say, you know what, you got me. Right? But if all we have is theology and head knowledge and a religious, you know, a glee club here, and we don't have any power, we don't have a move of God, we don't have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, where, then the darkness says, huh, you know, you don't have anything on us. Wow. This guy who is thoroughly engulfed in darkness, saw the light, and he, he realized it was genuine. Uh, the counterfeit is also going to, also 
will always be amazed by the authentic move of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 through 16 shows the formation of the early church's leadership structure. As the Spirit moves and as Philip makes converts and as a revival breaks out, the apostles from Jerusalem are sent down to strengthen and authenticate what's going on. What's the, the purpose of Peter and John and these, these centralized apostles that uh, kind of have leadership roles in the church? Well, they're to keep the theology from going off track. They're to authenticate the salvations and to, and to you know, just kind of keep a loose control over things so things don't spin out of control. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Where there's no leadership, there's chaos and confusion. Now, sometimes leadership becomes too regimented and too controlling, and that creates other problems, but no leadership is a problem as well. So we see some of the power structure here that God is putting in place. It's, it's, a, it's a leadership structure that is to keep the gospel pure and authentic and to strengthen what the Holy Spirit does. They come down, and they want to just strengthen the revival there and plant a church and put good leadership in there so that the church will grow and be healthy. Now, verses 15 Verse 15, Peter and John, they ministered to the new converts. They've been baptized in water, but for some reason they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Realize water baptism and spirit baptism are two separate things. They can happen at the same time. Many times we get people in the tank, we dunk them in there, we pray for them, they come up speaking in tongues full of the Holy Ghost. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but they're separate things. And the, they had gotten baptized in water, but for some reason, the, the, the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen. So maybe the reason was to get the leadership down from Jerusalem to come there to strengthen what was going on. God was just showing the church how to function, amen? And so they do come down and they lay hands on them and, and notice that the, the receiving of the Holy Spirit here comes on by the laying of hands. That's an important principle. You know, that point of contact there. Look, the Bible says, let no man lay hands on you suddenly. You know that scripture? You know why? Because what they got, you could get. You know, when the flu's going around, don't lay hands on me. Don't they do this to me, Julia. Right? But, <laughs> but like, when someone lays hands, that's impartation. You know, be careful who you let lay hands on you. Be careful. There's some people. <laughs> I've been in some meetings where someone go to lay the hand on them. Like, don't want it. Right? Those of, us who's been around, those of us who've been around a long time know a little bit about what I'm talking about. But they lay hands and they impart and realize that what you have, you can impart to others. Come on, you're, you, you, don't, you believe in yourself? You believe you the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you? Come on, oh no, that's just for the pastors. The past, you know, no, it's for you. You pray for your friends. You pray for unbelievers. You bring them, get them water baptized. You pray for them to receive the Holy Ghost. You can do it. I believe in you. <laughs> Let God use you. You don't sound like you believe in yourself out there. God uses the apostolic ministry there to impart, and the Holy Spirit begins to move. Um, Simon is you know, watching all of what's going on here, uh, verses 18 through 24 shows that Peter has a spiritual clash with Simon. So here we got this 
occultist sorcerer, and we got Peter, the apostle, who's, you know, kind of the, the head of what's going on there. He, you know, he has a, a great influence in leadership. And what happens? These two spiritual powers, they clash. And they did a good job showing the clash there. Why? Because Simon, you know, he is, you know, he's on the fringes here. He's intrigued by what's going on. He sees the power is genuine and he wants it. Uh, Peter, there again, right away, you could tell, you know, he smells a rat and he's not too impressed with this guy's character. He's using the, his discernment to see into what's going on in his heart. Um, those who walk in the power of the Holy Spirit will clash with those who walk in any other spirit. Notice what I said, any other spirit. If it's a worldly spirit, if it's a carnal spirit, if it's an unclean spirit, if it's a sexually perverse spirit, whatever it is, whatever spirit is out there that is not of God will clash with the Holy Spirit. And the more you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit and walking in the Holy Spirit, we are gonna have conflict with darkness. Seeing a lot of Christians go, oh, I'm out. I don't want that. I just want to, you know, slip below the radar. I just want to make it to see Jesus. I don't want any trouble with darkness or the devil or anything. But the thing is, God wants us to push back the darkness because if we're not pushing back the darkness, then we're just a light under a bushel basket. <laughs> so here's Peter and his light conflicts with Simon's darkness and they have a conflict with each other. Now, the, the conflict is kind of heated and Peter's pretty direct. Simon's astonished that the Holy Spirit is being poured out like this and he offers to pay money. It's interesting. It's interesting that, you know, money is the, the method here that he wants to pay because I think a lot of times this, this spiritual gifts, people do try and hijack them and use them for profit in the church. If you've noticed that, you know, people use spiritual gifts for profiteering. You can call up, you know, and get a personal prophecy given to you on the phone or some nonsense like that. Or you can have a speaker come in if you pay them so much money. Listen, you, you don't use the gifts like that. But yet it's the heart of a twisted person that wants to, you know, get money involved with ministry things. It's the wrong spirit. And so right away, you know, he's like, I want to pay money to get this power. And he asked Peter, and you know, people with bad motives and dark hearts are always looking for power in, in spiritual areas. Why? Because they see it as a moneymaker. God help us with those in the church who see their gifts as a way to make money. What a stench in the nostrils of God. Yet, there's plenty of that to go around still. And I hope the body of Christ is waking up to the, to the fact that, you know, these people who are profiteering and, and you, <laughs> racketeering with the gospel are just, you know, they have the wrong hearts. And Peter says that. Uh, profiteering from the gospel isn't new and it's definitely not extinct. So watch out for wolves who love money more than Jesus when it's all about money, 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 and you know, and then they'll mix in a little Jesus there to make it sound spiritual. That's your hint there. We've talked about false teachers a lot. We, we've talked about this. Why? Because when it's more about money than it is about Jesus, those type of people will fleece sheep and strip them and gut them and kill them and eat them with no remorse. Because that's the way false teachers roll. They don't care about the body of Christ. They don't care about people. They care about their brand and their name and how, you know, how much money is in their bank account and what kind of car they drive and how big their house is. 
Come on, if you see any of that, be a, be a mature saint, be a wise saint. Don't be around that. Don't sit under it. Don't listen to the teaching of it. Don't mail money into them. <laughs> Don't give them your, your visa card so they can pray over your bank account. Mm-hmm. So Peter, you know, is listening to this guy. He, he wants to buy the he wants to buy the Holy Spirit so he can use it to make money. And Peter goes off on the guy. He's not tactful. He's not gentle. He just, he just lets him have it in verse 20. But Peter said unto him, thy money perishes with thee because of thou hast the, thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. So Peter's not gentle with this guy. He really lets him have it. You know, he basically tells him to go to hell with his money. Your money perish with you. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. You can't buy the anointing of God. You can't buy the spiritual gifts. I mean, he just, you know, he's not very tactful. And, you know, may, you know um, money, money and the gospel just are, are not a good combination. So he tells him you can't buy spiritual things in the kingdom of God and your money should perish with you. Now, in verse 21, Peter cites a wrong heart. And he tells Simon, you know, this is why you, you have no place and you have no part in this. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. So there again, you know, what is, what is the prerequisite to use spiritual gifts? You gotta have the right heart, amen? Oh God, I want this gift and I want that gift and I wanna prophesy and I want a word of knowledge and I want word of wisdom and I, I wanna lay hands on people and see them get healed. Amen. Those are good things to want. The Bible says to desire the greater gifts. Amen. But understand, God is not going to give you that gift until your heart is right. And the truth is, most people's heart can't handle these gifts. Why? Because their ego swells up so big, they forget it's God and think it's them. God, well, God, just let me try. Let me just try it out. See, God won't give a machine gun to a baby. Right? because he's gonna hurt people. You don't hand a loaded gun to a child. And spiritual gifts are a loaded gun because they can be used to advance the kingdom of God or they can be used to lift up men with bad hearts and bad motives. So, you know, you can't buy it, Simon. You have no part in this because your heart is wrong. So he wants us to look at the heart. And that's the issue for, for us. When we go before God, we need to let him work on our hearts to strip us of pride and ego and to allow us to be truly humble. It's the people who are truly humble. <laughs> you know, some people, you know, some people are so close. I mean, they're so close, but there's that still that little shred of pride and ego that if they got a gift and God started using them and miracles had happened, they'd see, ha, see, I told you I was better than all of you guys. See, I told you I was the only one doing it right. See, I, you know, everybody else is, you know, just, I, I'm, the, I'm the cream of the crop. And God says, wah. No more outpouring through you. The spigot turns off. I hope you get my point tonight. And there again, these things are for times and seasons. And, you know, just because we, we're not healing the sick and raising the dead every chance we get doesn't mean we... Look, more people get healed when you pray for them than when you don't. Let me just say that again. Let me try this side of the room. More people get healed when you pray for them than when you don't. 
so pray for people and pray for healing and pray for the move of God and, and be open to what's going on. But it's up to God to release it. He knows when and how and through who, and that's up to him. Simon had no part. <laughs> he can't buy the Holy Spirit. It's not something. Peter lets him have it with both barrels. Uh, it's always a heart issue. It always boils down to the heart. Peter tells him to repent and ask God to forgive him. You know, and, and hopefully he did do that. And uh, Peter reads his mail prophetically and tells him, you're bitter as gall and you're in bondage to sin. Wow. Did you see that when he put his hands on him and he said that to him? Uh, you know, you're bitter and you're in bondage to sin. And notice that Simon doesn't argue with him. There again, word of knowledge, prophetic insight, the power of God. There was no refuting those words. And you see Simon, the way they portrayed it, he falls down and he said, you know, pray that none of this happens to me. You know, that's good, but you know what? He should have prayed himself. He should have got his heart right with God. And hopefully he did. But there's no secondhand faith. Oh, Peter, you pray for me. Oh, disciples, you pray for me. Oh, you guys who have the right heart, you pray for me. Sometimes we need to come before God and pray, God, straighten out my heart. Huh. It was that secondhand desire that he had there that showed me he wasn't quite ready to get right with God. So all of this happens here, and, uh, you know, Simon has his little encounter, and we don't hear anything about him after that. So hopefully he fell in line, got right with God. Verse 25 through 40, the, the whole chapter shifts gears, and now we hear Philip's interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch. There again, uh, you know, what is going on here? God is showing us how he's strategically allowing the gospel to spread. You know, they spread to these areas where the people got thrown out. Now, you know, one of the disciples is about to encounter an Ethiopian eunuch who is, a, you know, an emissary of the queen of Ethiopia. So this guy is a pretty important guy, and he has influence. You say, what's that all about? It's strategic. You, you know, understand, God does things strategically. And this is one of those divine appointments here that we need to see that, you know, the gospel could have been introduced into Ethiopia by this man and, and Christianity planted there and spread there uh, from this man and it was through this one encounter. Now in verse 26, an angel of the Lord directs Philip. He gives him directions. He gets, go south on the desert road and that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he got angel directions. Forget about Siri, forget about Google Maps, forget about your Navi, okay? God can direct us without any of that stuff. And if you get directions from an angel of the Lord, you better go. I liked what they did in the, in the thing. He got up, it was nighttime. He packed up his stuff. The fire, the fire, you didn't put the fire out. You didn't put the fire out. <laughs> he noticed stuff like that. So he gets the directions and he goes. And he's, a, he's an obedient servant. And that's good for us to understand. We need to hear the voice of the Lord and be obedient. So Philip meets this eunuch in verse 27. He's an official ambassador of the queen of Ethiopia. So he's a connected man. He's important. Impacting him could impact a whole nation. I want you to see that, how the gospel spreads. This is, none of this is an accident. It's divine appointment. Now the, eunuch, now the eunuch came to Jerusalem to worship. So this guy's a spiritual guy. He, he's seeking. He's a seeker. Have you heard that word, a seeker? Maybe you've heard churches that are seeker-friendly. 
Amen? It's good to uh, make room for people to come in who are, you know, not Christian, and we don't want just transfer growth from other churches. Do you know a lot of growth in churches is just people leaving one church and going to another? Pastors, we call that transfer growth. We, we don't want all transfer growth because why? Because those people who left one church to come to yours will eventually leave yours to go to another one. <laughs> Ask me how I know that. <laughs> well, I've been doing this a long time, right? What we want is not transfer growth, but we want growth from people who are lost on the outside, coming in, getting saved, getting born again, being discipled, and being raised up to maturity. That's the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is not to do it better than the church next door so everybody leaves that church and comes to your church. Woo, we're the winner. In Spanish, estupido. Right? That's... That's stupid. Meanwhile, we're, we're shifting the deck back and forth and the world's going to hell out there. We need to make it so that when the lost come in, man, I'm telling you, I, I gotta just say, you know, well done, you guys. When people come here from, you know, out in the street, they say to me, oh, this church is so loving. I feel so accepted. People were nice to me. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's stuff that you don't hear a lot of times in certain places. And that's a good thing. So well done, Full Gospel Center. Well done, amen. When you see a new person, when you see a lost person, when you, I mean, you can tell when they come in that look on their face, they're like, <laughs> introduce yourself, say hi, give them a hug. Amen. You know, Nancy can't hug everybody. You help her out, <laughs> right? She's working hard. So we need a lot of huggers going around saying hi. Now people are like, But, so, you know, the church is growing and this eunuch is an opportunity for growth to plant seed and go to a faraway land. He was a seeker. He came to Jerusalem to worship. So this guy is looking for something and God is about to reveal himself to him. That's such an awesome thing here. The eunuch is sitting in his little cart there and they're pulling him along and he's reading Isaiah from a scroll. Uh, you know, he's trying to understand it. And, and Philip comes up to him and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch's response is so humble. How can I, unless somebody shows me? So there again, not, not a proud guy. He's a humble guy. And I want you to see that. If he would have said, yeah, 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 I understand. <laughs> see, humility goes a long way. And understand, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So this guy's humble response shows me that his heart is ripe. Yeah, he's a seeker. He, he says, I can't understand you. You show it to me. So he asked Philip to guide him in verse 31 and give him the interpretation of the text. Now, never forget, uh, the humble heart of a student will open many doors for us. Never become a know-it-all. Never think that you know you're above. You can learn something from anybody. I've learned stuff from biblical scholars in seminary and Bible school. I've learned stuff from guys that, you know, their, their minds, the systematic theology, just amazing. I've learned stuff from homeless people in the streets doing ministry in New York City. 
I'll never forget one time sitting in the gutter with a guy sharing his testimony with me who was hooked on crack during that crack epidemic when I was young and we were doing ministry. And he's sitting there soaked in his own urine and shabby clothes and he's telling me his testimony and the Holy Spirit is tucking things in my heart. This guy was a doctor. He got hooked on crack. He lost his practice. He lost his license. He lost his wife. He lost his family. He lost all his money. And I'll never forget looking into his eyes and, and, the, and the pain and the brokenness. You can learn something from anybody if you have the heart of a student. If you get too big for your britches, you can't learn anything. <laughs> and then you're dying because you're not growing anymore. So this guy's humble and he, he wants to learn. You know, people who know everything and are unteachable and would rather learn the hard way in life, they're exhausting. They're exhausting the pastors, and I'm sure they're exhausting to you. And if you have family members or coworkers like that, they know everything. They don't need anybody to teach them. They got to learn everything the hard way. Exhausting. <laughs> and to God too. Verse 20, uh, 32 and 33, uh, he's looking at uh, Isaiah, and it's a messianic scripture that predicts the, the Messiah. And it's foretelling the, Jesus and the conduct of his accusers and what he's going to go through. So verse 34 and 35, Philip uses Isaiah's prophecy. He begins to read the prophecy, gives him a little insight to it. And then what does he do? He uses it as a springboard to preach the gospel. And I want you to see that. He didn't just stay in the Old Testament prophecy there and kind of untangle all of those things. No, he used that what? To preach Jesus Christ. And you and I need to learn to be effective in our communication that we can use any topic to segue into the gospel. And with a little practice, I guarantee you can do it. God's given each of us gifts and skills and abilities and knowledge and passions and things we like about. It could be, you know, you like to exercise, you like a certain sport, you know, and all of a sudden you're connecting with somebody. And the next thing you know, you use that as a springboard into sharing your faith with them. Don't just talk about football. Just don't, don't talk about sports. Just don't talk about the gym and the, talk about Jesus. You know, we, we need to do that a lot more than we do. <laughs> I know you have to build relationship with people. I know you can't just jump on their back and, and, and scream in their ears, Jesus loves you. You got to build a relationship. But we've got to begin to turn the conversation to eternal things at some point. Otherwise, we're just being superficial. He takes this Isaiah thing. He takes the guy's interest in spirituality. He uses it as a springboard to share the gospel with him. And the guy just soaks it up. He just begins to drink it in. Uh, you say, how do you know that? Because by the time verse 36 arrives, this guy sees water. And he's like, Can I, how about baptizing me? So I like this here. I mean, this is, this is a divine encounter here. And, you know, just the fact that, you know, this guy is listening, he's hearing about Jesus, and then he wants to get baptized in the water. It says, on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What does hinder me from being baptized? Now listen to 37. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And I want you to catch that there. That was the only prerequisite he had to believe. Okay, we don't want to baptize unbelievers. The Bible teaches it's a believer's baptism. We don't baptize just people, you know, to run them through the tub so we can get the numbers. We baptized 100 people. How many of them believed in Jesus? 
How many of them made a profession of faith? How many of them understood what their baptism was about? Well, those are the only numbers that count. This guy, you know, in verses 36 and 37, he wants to be baptized, and he, he, the only prerequisite was that, you know, you believed. And it, he says here, and Philip said, if you believe it all your heart, you may. And listen to the answer. And he answered and said, oh, this is awesome. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Bible says what? If we believe that he's the son of God and that he raised from the dead, we'll be saved, amen? It's very simple. This guy had faith, he professed his faith, and then he was ready to be baptized. We only baptize believers. That's why we don't baptize infants because you can preach, you can preach all day long skillfully to a two-month-old baby and you will never get a profession of faith. You might get spit up on and change a diaper, but you're not going to get what this guy just gave. I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So that's the only prerequisite to water baptism. Believe and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, Acts 2.38, amen? So there's the, there's the procession of how it works. This guy met the prerequisite and so they baptize him. He says, I believe in Jesus. He said, let's go to the water. So at verse 38 through 39, as the chapter's closing down, Philip baptizes the man. When they come up out of the water, the Holy Spirit removes Philip from that place and he transports him to Azotus. So, you know, you say, what in the world was that all about? There again, we don't know, but... If he would have stayed there, maybe he would have messed it up. Sometimes you just have to say what you need to say, do what you need to do, and then move on. Most of us aren't good at that. <laughs> so maybe Philip wasn't, and God said, boop. Come on, you thought Star Trek was the only one that beamed people up. That's a rough crowd. So he removes him there, and he, he brings him to a whole other place, and that's, a, that's an interesting thing all by itself. It says, uh, and when they were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. So this guy gets baptized. He believes in the Lord. He's, he's saved. He goes away rejoicing. Uh, verse 40, but Philip was found in Azotus, and then passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So he just goes back to doing what he's doing wherever he is he shares the gospel. And as this chapter closes down, I want to leave you with that thought. Wherever you find yourself, share the gospel. Amen. Wherever you go tomorrow, whether you go to work, whether you go walk into a deli, get an egg sandwich, wherever you find yourself, look for an opportunity to share Christ. Amen. If you look for those opportunities, the Holy Spirit will begin to orchestrate them. And you're going to see fruit produced in the way of souls. Because God is looking for those who will partake in the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I thank you tonight for this chapter. I thank you for all the gems and the principles and the exhortations tucked into there. Father, I pray that the ones that for us uh, as individuals would have leapt out and, and just connected with our hearts. Father, I pray that we would be more evangelistic, that we would see our time here on this earth as, as not a time to amass a kingdom or worry about uh, the things of this world or let the cares of the world overwhelm us like they so easily do. But Lord, we would see ourselves as preachers with handfuls of seed that wherever we were, we'd begin to sow the seed and we would begin to see a harvest of souls. 
Father, there's so many people in this church that bring people to this church and they get saved and they become part of the family of God. Father, I pray that you would mobilize us to all, that all of us would begin to do that, not just a handful, but that we would learn to do it. It would be the culture of our church that we would reach out with boldness. We would share Christ and that you would begin to orchestrate divine appointments for each of us so that we can be used by your hand. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.